1: Any attempt to, to dismantle the achievements of the common market by undermining the common agriculture policy... This
2: is a tale of a traveller who was something of an unlikely traveller, but who at the end of the day had journeyed better than most.
3: Erlingus announced the departure of flight 543 to London. Passengers should board the aircraft to gate B5. Passengers travelling to Strasbourg should also board this aircraft... Well, the I wouldn't have
2: noticed her at all but that the queue was being held up. The line behind her was becoming impatient. She seemed to be taking an awful long time at the check-in. She had a new coat, a new hat. There was a cluster of ceramic fruit hanging off one corner of the hat. And she had several handbags on one arm. The other arm touched the hand of the Aer Lingus girl with indecisive agitation.
3: That's right, madam. Flight 543 to London. Then you change at London and transfer to Air France, direct to Strasbourg. But uh, how will I know the Strasbourg plane? As it says on your ticket, madam. AF 673 Heathrow, London to Strasbourg. It'll be announced on the Tannoy. Oh, on the front, is it? Will it be written on the front of the plane? No, madam. Look, there on your ticket. That's the number to watch out for. But if it's not written on the front, how will I know? I mean, I wouldn't have got up to Dublin from Sligo if the name wasn't on the front of the bus.
2: Behind her, the line tapped its feet restlessly, the announcement aboard was made again, and the Erlingus girl dredged up the remnants of her customer relations training. A few of us made coughing and muttering noises behind her. She looked around with eyes of the clearest blue behind her polished spectacles and said...
3: I'm awfully sorry to be holding you up, only I, I've never been on a plane before. You see, I'm trying to get to Strasbourg.
2: So are uh, the rest of us, madam, the man beside me said and fell instantly sorry, as the blue eyes clouded with heart and panic. So to atone quickly, he moved near and said, yes, we were all going to Strasbourg, but as she cast her gaze down the line of suits and tense expressions above the snap-lock briefcases... I thought she was going to cry. And succumbing to that desperation that instantly afflicts most men at impending female tears... I mean, she could have been my aunt. I said, ''It's all right. If if you just move to the side there, we'll look after you.'' And so she relaxed. Mind you, she still had to negotiate several cardboard boxes bound with string. I helped her put those in the baggage conveyor once it had been explained to her that she couldn't carry them aboard... Then she smiled with gratitude. She smiled down the line behind me. I daren't look. She told me there were presents for her niece, who was, as she put it, in the EEC. The tannoy squawked. I checked in my own ticket and motioned her to the embarkation gate. Before leaving, she took out two tenpenny pieces for the Erlingus girl as a tip. The girl said,
1: That's
3: not necessary, madam.
2: But she looked hurt again, and so the girl took them. Then she closed her purse and opened her bag, put in the purse and closed the bag, and off we went to board the flight to London. At the security check-in we had another hold-up as she engaged the rummaging security officer in a detailed description of the contents of her handbag, rosary beads and scapulars and coins and what have you. But I got her through that with little damage except to the composure of the man who was doing the searching. And then, filing down the narrow passageway between the seats, my own sense of chivalry weakened on board the aircraft, and I left her to a capable hostess. At takeoff, I noticed she had the beads out and her lips moved in prayer, her fingers fluttering along the rosary. Her prayers may have been answered in some sort of way, for at London Heathrow there was a bomb scare, as the captain announced, and we squandered our connection time inside the aircraft, perspiring like a busload of tropical tourists. She was working overtime on the beads then, eyes closed, propped upright in her seat, in serene anticipation. While around her, passengers talked and attempted to read, called for more drinks, but stayed trust in their belts by order. As the time passed and the temperature inside the aircraft rose with the alcoholic consumption, her prayers, I am sure, wafted even higher. And when after an hour they let us trundle out, crumpled and disgruntled and relieved, I saw that she was intact. And then I missed her in the interconnecting, in the toing and flowing across the various tarmacs and through the tunnels of London Airport as we tried to make up for our last time. But when my working companions and I arrived breathlessly aboard the Air France Caravelle, there she was ahead of us, magazines, suites, purses, seatbelts and rosary beads. Why was she travelling? To visit the European Parliament, which sits at intervals in Luxembourg and in Strasbourg, as I found out two days later. There she was, in the Visitor's Gallery, paying keen interest to an interminable debate on the quota price of Italian sheep meat. Now, the European Parliament has 400 members drawn by franchise from nine countries. There's an extensive Visitor's Gallery ringing the chamber, and there's a constant occupancy of that balcony through the duration of any debate not for very long, but just long enough for parties and groups from the nine member states to sit and observe the workings of the Parliament. The President of the Parliament sits facing the amphitheatre in which the deputies sit, each visitor having a set of earphones to listen in their own language. And at every entry to the Parliament there are resplendent ushers in white gloves and gold chains. And altogether it's rather an impressive building, an impressive forum of the nine countries and a working consultation to the proposition that the countries of Europe, which twice in a half century had done slaughter upon each other, would never again be lured into such confrontation, not at least while they had the forum to make jaw-jaw instead of war-war.
4: La séance est ouverte. Je déclare reprise la session du Parlement européen interrupted on may 23,
2: I don't know if such ponderings occupied the lady with the rosary and the fruit in her hat as she sat above the debating chamber. She certainly seemed to pay keen attention to the debates, to Neil Blaney asking a question about Greek membership and to Gaston Thorne urging more creative uses of energy. Or, as in this case, Yvette Roudy.
4: We must have a real good discussion to restructure Uh, this uh, agricultural uh, policy. And I am sure we are capable to come to an agreement if we have the political will. And I wonder sometimes if we haven't forgotten for what Europe has been constructed. We wanted to have a block, a political, an ecological block in Europe, because we mustn't forget that we are living in a world well, you have two huge, powerful nations, which are the United States on one side and Russia on the other side. We must build Europe, and we must have the political will. If we have this political will, I am sure we can find agreement and we can work seriously on the reconstructing this agricultural policy and building other common policy, such as energy, for example.
2: A considered statement from a leading parliamentarian. What did our travelling visitor think of that?
3: Oh, very nice.
2: She kept herself to herself, and I didn't see her among any of the groupings that tend to go about together. She wasn't among those that get ferried around Strasbourg in coaches provided by the parliament, nor was she in any of the more fashionable gourmet restaurants that do a lively and lucrative custom with visitors. But she did turn up with an unerring nose for where the action was. She did turn up at Bang the Bells, the late night and early morning restaurant where the Irish congregate. It's universally known among the Irish on duty in Strasbourg as Bang the Bells because an Irish member of Parliament who couldn't sleep very well and was wandering around Strasbourg for a place to stay found that by banging on the bells of this restaurant, he gained admission. It became a home from home for the Irish, and it's looked after by a motherly French woman of Polish extraction. But perhaps I should let bang the bell speak for itself.
5: Uh, nicknamed by my predecessor, the late Sean Bosnian. And uh, from the very beginning they found it convenient, and they passed on the good news, the information to us, so here it is, we're continuing the tradition.
2: Tell me the story of uh, how the Irish started to
5: Well, um, on the lookout, of course, for some uh, late eating house because Parliament has been known to sit as late as 4am in the morning and uh, very few places one would get the facility of a drink to a meal at that hour but this is one place which recognised the need, obviously, of politicians up to ministers and uh, commissioners for that matter. I've seen commissioners on these premises and um, quite relaxed in meeting the um, ordinary staffs of the Parliament. The drivers are here. In fact, some of them are having a at the moment. and uh, oh, those yes. French men over there are some drivers? Some um, of them are drivers. So it's, it's, it's a very democratic house, no distinction of any kind once the behaviour is in, in keeping with the hospitality.
2: Now, tell me a bit about the travel demands on you. You would leave Mallow, say, on a Monday in order to attend a parliamentary session in Strasbourg on... A Tuesday morning.
5: Is it arduous travel? Uh, well, it is. <coughs> the demands are kind of best summed up by uh, saying that this is my uh, last week was my third week since Christmas, that I didn't have to go abroad. That's since the 9th of January. And the planning session in, in Salzburg means for me getting up at 5 o'clock in the m- morning at Mallow, uh, getting in the Cork Airport at 7.45, f- flying to Dublin, getting in the Frankfurt flight, and travelling 150 miles by road, on transport supplied by the mayor of Strasbourg, of course, to uh, the session, which uh, starts in Strasbourg at 5 p.m. on Monday. We immediately go into a meeting on the day of arrival at four o'clock. Which meeting
2: is this? In uh, uh, committee meeting. Of uh, the parliamentary group that you are, the uh, Gaulus uh, and.
5: the Gaulus group, and uh, that goes on until Parliament sits in old Iulia, and it's quite possible and it's quite has happened, the Parliament is set until midnight on that Monday, and this goes on for the whole week, and the return route is the same, back 150 miles by road to Frankfurt, flight to Dublin, uh, wait for the 9.30 flight to Cork, and get into Mello at 12 midnight.
2: I noticed uh, earlier that when you took some change out from your pocket, you had marks, marks, Franks Belgian <coughs> francs, French francs, Irish tenpenny pieces English Pound notes all the rest of it if you take out that fistful of money on a bar at home in Mallow where your real sport is and where you're attempting to translate the currency of the common market to the understanding of your constituents in Mallow, does it all bewilder you at sometime around uh,
5: it, it does, it does and it it, it, um, it uh, excites the uh, supporters to think that the representative kind of has been around that much and I find that a very interesting exercise to give souvenirs to my close friends of coins from different countries and so on but uh, actually in Ireland people are becoming very international now too you know and um, no longer is it a mystery being out, try- leaving for Brussels in the morning at at 6.30 and getting back that night, having a pint before going to bed in Mellon the same day. But what do you tell them,
2: Jerry Cronin, when you get back there, about what you've been doing in the Parliament with 400 other members, with the Tories clapping the benches like outraged uh, adolescent public school boys with people trying to make political points in five or six languages, multi-translation. What do you tell them you've been doing for them?
5: Well, our, our mission... Our appointments and uh, designations are quite clear, cut we uh, campaigned on the common agricultural policy that we defend that, we kept our priorities right, I think, from the beginning. The Irish people depend upon us to preserve everything that's good for agriculture, because for example, uh, Kevin, in my authority, uh, we have creamies, we have sugar factories, we have everything that happens is dependent on agriculture, so it's easy for me anyway as representative to justify my stand out here for the Common Agricultural Policy because the well-being of agriculture in in, in my constituency and in Munster as a whole is the well-being of the community as a whole. And that's how it makes sense. So if I say nothing beyond the fact that I have championed agriculture and made the best case possible for agricultural products, I, I think I would have justified myself. But then of course, as well as that, we are interested in regional policy. I'm number one for the group on the regional committee and that has a bearing on all aspects of of uh, local administration, local authorities and so on, road making sewage schemes, water schemes and so on, so we have a lot to gain uh, to the regional fund and regional scheme and that's number two on our, on our thing but agriculture one a regional two and these are our priorities, other things follow let the bigger powers hammer out the details of the more widespread issues which are multi in multi, and, and numbers and, and, and t- involving third countries and the rest of the world as well but I think it's important for us as a small nation to keep, keep the things that are most important to us in the forefront. It
2: has been said about the parliament that uh, on exactly the basis that you have been outlining it that each grouping is determinately nationalistic and that there's very little of the pan-european spirit, there's very little of the spirit of arguing for uh, other depressed areas are arguing for the interests of other types which m- might run counter to one's own constituents. For instance, the British are regarded as bad Europeans because they keep filibustering and blocking regional aid and aid for farmers on the grounds that they mainly have an industrial proletariat <coughs> uh, and that the common market is pushing up the price of food.
5: Well, Ultimately, the, uh, the, the policies of the common market must be of benefit to the whole, the, all the members of the community. In the short term, yes, some countries contribute a good deal more than they get out. We, for example, in Ireland, we are one of the main beneficiaries. We we are net beneficiaries out of the common market. And as a trading bloc, I think it's important for Britain and for the big powers, the Germans and the French, to see it in that way. That they'll ultimately benefit as being a big part of a big trading bloc, dependent economically and indeed politically on one another you remember that after the war, when um, Europe was heavily depressed after the last World War II, that they gave martial aid to countries in, in uh, Europe to build up their economies, to build them up as potential customers of their own in times to come, And it's paid off. So it's, uh, it's, in, it's, it's in keeping with that uh, policy that the, um, the British and the French and the Germans especially uh, will make a substantial contribution towards building up a good West European trading bloc.
2: What about your relations with uh, other nationalities? Do you find them friendly and helpful?
5: Well, I do, yes. The French are extremely friendly and uh, they had a great respect for de Valero, former leader, party leader and president, who was often likened to General de Gaulle and uh, uh, that has meant a good deal for us and uh, some of the Brits are okay. Uh, some fine Tories, and uh, have
2: a drink with them, and you'll talk farming ah, of and stuff or
5: uh, well get on, th- on a personal
2: level. I think this is all.
5: This is what it's all about. As a unit, we must help each other in common policies. There are areas of disagreement when we must show our colours in the full but uh, there are other areas where we're considering common problems when we must cooperate, and I think it's a good thing. After all, we have passed how many years since the Second World War? It's the biggest period of peace that the world, uh, that Europe has known in its history.
2: Jerry Cronin, one of the members of the European Parliament for the Munster Constituency. So what did she think of all that?
3: Well, it's very nice, isn't it? But goodness, don't they stay up late?
2: And late or not, or early or not, there she was in attendance herself the following morning at the Parliament at a session which began at nine o'clock. I know because I had to drag myself out of bed after the session at Bang the Bells, that extracurricular parliamentary session, and I fell into the lift at the hotel to take me down to breakfast. It was an exercise in fragility, breakfast. Even the cracking of an egg sounded like a gong within my head. So by the time I had arrived at a snail's pace to the Parliament building, a major debate of the morning was well in progress.
4: We must have the whole discussion on the table. And we, mustn't, we We cannot split one part of the problem to another. The community is in a big crisis, in a political crisis, especially a political crisis. It's because we are, uh, 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 everything is going... going
2: there she was in the visitor's Speaking. gallery, I mean, earphones so many, on and in rapt attention, managing to avoid being bored in six languages simultaneously. And she was able to enlighten me on what had gone on.
3: I got early Mass in a little chapel near the Place la République.
2: But not all the Irish in Europe, in Strasbourg, in Luxembourg, or in Brussels are involved directly as members of the Parliament. There are plenty more who are s- civil servants, who work among the various bureaucracies attached to the Parliament and to the EC idea, and among them particularly are the stagiaires, the young trainees in their 20s, mainly graduates. And in one of the bars in Strasbourg near the Parliament, we met some of them.
6: You have to to stay here. No. No. It's better to get it here.
2: Better get it. You're Irish, are you?
6: Yes. Yeah.
2: (laughs) You work in the... uh...
6: Well, I work in the Commission in Brussels, but we come here for the sessions every... Yeah. Yeah. I qualified in August, and I'm a solicitor, and I worked as a solicitor with Matt normsby and Prentice, a firm in Dublin, until March and then I came over to Brussels where I started working as a Stagiaire with the European Commission and my work is related to consumer affairs and working in the Department of Consumer Protection as a Stagiaire. What is a Stagiaire? A Stagiaire is a period of traineeship with the Commission where you gain experience with Commission work European integration life in Europe you um, are one of two hundred and fifty 250 stagiaires. We work for five months and we have thir- 34 different nationalities working as stagiaires.
2: You work in the Berlin in Brussels mainly, is it?
6: Well, I'm not actually in the Berlin or we're in a separate building with a separate division and we work it's quite close to the Burley
2: What would you say are the advantages of a girl coming out from Ireland to work here apart from all the uh, interesting men and the late night uh, <laughs>
6: Drinking and
2: the beaches, the tans, and all (laughs) that.
6: (laughs) 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 But apart from that, um, I think it still has quite a lot to offer because, well, number one, it broadens your view through through meeting other nationalities, and also I think it's very interesting to see the work that's actually been done in Brussels. Like when you're in Dublin, people have an image of the the Commission; it's rather far away. They don't, you know, they're not really familiar with its with its workings and procedures. But when you're there, you get a tremendous insight. Into the work and the attitude and the aim towards united Europe.
2: But does that idealism sometimes get bogged down in an enormous amount of paper clips and uh, paragraphs about the minutiae of sheep meat? And uh, long discussions about the size of shoes to be standardized throughout europe i mean do you do you personally feel some sense of the european ideal?
6: Well, I can see the point you make in sort of being bogged down by paper clips, but I think and a lot of sort of red tape and technicalities but when you 've got nine members and nine member states and you know you 're trying to reach an agreement on each thing, I think you have to be specific and that's probably the main difficulty. It's one thing that I've observed in going to meetings that when you've got the delegations from the member states and each person has their view and it's got to be thrashed out and you know, narrowed down until everybody agrees and I think this is why directives take so long in going through. It's just the problem on reaching an agreement.
2: Would you yourself in your own civil service type of work uh, getting information together for drafting reports and that kind of thing, would you Uh, find yourself acting nationally yourself?
6: Well I think one is inclined to be biased towards one's own country you know and yes I must admit that Ireland would be my primary interest you know but I think also from the experience I've had I would now be more inclined to so consider other countries and consider sort of harmonisation and unity, as opposed to just concentrating purely on the Irish aspect.
4: Most of uh, the trainees are economists or lawyers. Uh, one is a uh, psychi- psychiatrist. Yes, uh, some are. Do uh, you say that um, politicians? No, <laughs> they studied uh, politics.
7: Mm -hmm. Uh, Students of politics.
4: Yes, students of politics. But basically, most of us are lawyers or economists. And what do you think of the Irish stagiaires? Um, I can especially talk about uh, Irish uh, female stagiaires because they are very noisy, (laughs) but uh, generally very friendly. I would say that they are more Mediterranean than uh, Spanish and Italian trainees. And uh with them, we have a really a lot of fun uh they are really very self confident uh, as a whole
1: well, I'm always very suspicious of this sort of national characterization because you can always find people who s- fit a certain stereotype um but that's no proof that they are entire that they entirely fit the stereotype or that the nation is in any way responsible for that i mean, as i say the most of the Irish people I know are always very good company, they're very funny, but I don't know if the whole of them, I've never been to Ireland, I have no idea if you, you know, laugh yourself silly down the streets of Dublin.
7: Well, I think this is a particularly unusual group this time, because we have more uh, Irish stagehairs on this particular session, usually there's a f- 15 are allocated per year, which means seven each session but uh, we have 13 this time, and there are a lot of women, yes. But then there are a lot of bright women in UCD.
2: And of the uh, bright women who are here, um, what, half a dozen of them or something seem to be out?
7: Um, let's see, of the 13 Irish stagiaires, is about, about 9 or 10 of them women. Though in fact, they're not all in UCD. But there's a preponderance of lawyers and economists which would tally with the rest of the stagiaires in I mean, all the other national groups.
2: What do you enjoy about Europe?
7: Well I live in Europe all the time.
2: But what, what do you enjoy about being in, in Luxembourg, in Brussels, in Strasbourg? Do do you for instance, do you find other women interesting? Do you do you like the way Yes,
7: yes, in fact this is this is a, a, a very interesting point because I've discussed this with some of my female colleagues on the stage and we have come to the conclusion that well, whatever about the other star groups, on this particular stage, it's definitely the women who are the more interesting. There are some very exceptional women on this star.
2: Exceptional in what way?
7: They're very interesting, intelligent, mature. Um, Basic. No, well, I mean, what more do you want? Uh, they, are, they are, in fact, yes, they're far more humorous. Um,
5: More More depth
7: and more perception than the average man on the stage. Now, yes, yes, I'm sorry, I I will hold to that view, whatever argument.
2: One of the many of the Irish bright young things who find employment and careers in Europe. But though many of them are temporary, behind them are the senior civil servants, some of whom came out as early as 73
8: when Ireland joined the EEC. Dermot McKeever. Well, uh, we're speaking now from Strasbourg, and as you know, uh, the Secretariat of the Parliament is based in Luxembourg, so I actually live in Luxembourg. So I'm here for this week of the session in Strasbourg, and one of uh, the tasks, one of my jobs, in fact, is to arrange for the meetings of the Parliament. In fact, this session, which is the biggest meeting of the Parliament, is arranged by our particular service. Which is? This is the conference service of the Parliament, which includes the protocol service and involves the uh, setting up of meetings, the interpretation provided for the meetings, and the provision of all the services that take place outside the meeting proper. And what kind of staff do you have? Well, we have, of course, the staff of all the nine nationalities. In fact, the Usher service, which numbers about 150 staff, um is drawn from all of the uh, nine countries, including Ireland. We have several Irish ushers uh, in the Parliament. Uh, the majority, however, are from the um, the six uh, countries which previously made up the uh, community before the new countries, Denmark, in- Britain and Ireland, came in in '73. What would you say was the contrast between having worked in Ireland
2: and now coming out here with your family and you have... Uh, a pan-european family, your
8: children multilingual and so on. Do you
2: see that as part of the progress of Europe?
8: Yes, I I think we had a a particular advantage in coming uh, to Luxembourg, coming to Europe with two children who were quite young. They were four and six, and they were able to go to school, as you say, in this um, multilingual environment in Luxembourg, which meant that they took along uh, languages straight away. So for the future, uh, their problems in languages will not be the same as ours, our generation, where we have to learn the language as adults, and and I think all of us found it quite difficult. But now you are fairly fluent in German and French yourself.
2: Uh, You would regard that as necessary?
8: Yes, it's necessary in the sense that quite a number of the people we deal with, and the people we deal with are primarily the members of the European Parliament, prefer naturally to express themselves in their own language. For them, uh, their time is so uh, taken up with the uh, necessary work of the parliament that, in general, they do not have much time to spare in learning languages. Um, If the staff of the European parliament, on the other hand, can, over periods of years, add the languages, they can better serve the members. And basically, this is what we all try to do. We normally work in one language, that's the French, uh, which means that... Every nationality which, uh, every, every member of every nationality which comes to Europe generally tries to learn French. We use French as the working language. Uh, I was working in Dublin until '73. in fact, uh, when the jobs were advertised, the jobs for the European Parliament, um, inviting newcomers, that's to say, uh, the Irish, uh, British and uh, Danes to come to the Parliament as staff. And I simply applied for a job and went through the normal, what is called the open competition system, which means, um, uh, in fact, having an interview, uh, proving your qualifications, and then uh, it's a French system, actually. A a jury, as it's called, uh, selects the candidates and appoints them to the particular jobs. So two of us came out initially in in the early 73, in early 73, and we were followed by uh, five or six other staff, and, and uh, from then uh, we've gone to a position where there are at least 50 Irish staff now working with the Irish, par- with the European Parliament. How would you rate the Irish contribution and the Irish staff? How would you rate their performance? Well, it's very, very interesting. Um, the Irish here in Europe have uh, perhaps found an echo of the uh, perhaps the original Irish who came around 800. Uh, the the Irish that we're all very proud of, who came as missionaries and who went to different countries, particularly to Belgium and to Germany and to France, founded monasteries. Uh, These monasteries later became schools, and there are several schools which are very well known on the continent which have an Irish origin.
3: Now, the thing is, St Géraldus was here in the 8th century, a most efficacious saint. He was a kinsman of one of the earls of Sligo. He translated the Douai Bible, I think he's buried in the cathedral.
2: Looking at cathedrals, even soaring ones of towering stone as in Strasbourg, can pall, as can dreams of Europe as Lindy Nocton found.
1: I found it very hard being away from home. I found there was lots of things about living in Europe which you don't realise in Ireland, such as the emigration problem there, the amount of Africans, Iranians living there who, for women in particular... Uh, make life very difficult because uh, they regard women as dogs and cows so that even on a Sunday I remember I used to go out for walks on Sunday and I was invariably followed and poked at and this and it wasn't at all you know we think we're afraid here in Ireland but in broad daylight on a Sunday to be followed by some leering Iranian isn't And I was actually beaten up. I was um, punched in the face and karate chopped one day too because I I turned around and said something rude to one of these immigrant workers. I think that's one aspect that uh, fortunately we don't have here of European life. But of course there are compensating factors as well. What were those? Well, um, the cultural life. uh, For me, the theatre was stupendous. Uh, I've never seen theatre like I've seen in Strasbourg and I'm very grateful for for the experience of that. Actually coming out of a theatre and clutching at walls because the sense what you'd seen was so incredible. You know, operatic use of language, which, of course, the French are masters at. And there's the French language itself, which is so incredibly beautiful. It's such a joy to actually speak it. And uh, just the general respect for culture that we don't have here, like books for uh, th- this business of the FNAC stores in France where you can buy cut-price books and records for about £3. So of course, I just went mad, absolutely. And uh, there was that. I didn't like, another thing I didn't like there, though, was that um, you, you couldn't, uh, say, go out on your own. You couldn't go running. People didn't understand this at all. And that was my other interest, which, uh, because I couldn't do it, I started getting annoyed. You know. Why couldn't you do it? Oh, people would spit at you, literally. Once again, the immigrant workers, I used to go out running at about half six in the morning, believe it or not, and uh, the immigrant workers would be waiting for buses at various points around... Strasbourg is an island, the city centre, and uh, there's a lake around it, and I used to run around... Or there's a canal and a river system, and I used to run around the bank, but at one point I had to come up and pass by these people waiting for a bus to go to some job somewhere, and the comments were... You know, they'd make you feel humiliated. It wasn't like here, where they'd just say something and you turn around and say, yes, same to you, or something. Mm.
2: And you had a good job, 14,000 a year, ahead of the English print section of uh, one of those uh, mammoth bureaucracies, and you gave it all up.
1: I did, yeah. Why? I was extremely unhappy there. Uh, I found dealing with bureaucracy unpo- really impossible. I tried my best, but... I found that maybe it's like the foreign, the, the strange dog coming into a pack. They can sniff when you're not one of them. And uh, I remember I, I as I went along my time in Strasbourg, uh, I set certain rules. First of all, I said, you have to go in in a suit. So I used to go in in a suit looking very respectable. Then I said, skirt. And then I said to myself, ah, you might as well wear trousers, but no denims. And when I actually started going in in I realised the end was in sight because they just didn't like it at all. And, of course, there was also the fact that I was one of the few women of a certain grade, of the A grades, so that the secretaries in that, they they didn't feel that uh, I would be nice to them or that this kind of thing they felt. It took them a while to realise I was a human being as well. But there was this gap that the A's, there was this kind of a social system That wasn't. I didn't like it at all. Coming from a journalistic background, where everybody is just a human being, you know, and out there, like A's didn't associate with B's, and L's were in another building, and the court people were this, and the council people were this, and the E.C. people were another lot, and it was mind-boggling. the The whole. French bourgeoisie gone absolutely mad, I think. You know, they could discuss, I remember on one notable occasion, uh, it went on for about a week at coffee breaks, which were taken at quarter past ten on the dot every day. Uh, we all went down, and they discussed whether a horizontal uh, freezer was better than um, a vertical freezer for a full week. That, you know, that was their level of conversation. How to spend these enormous sums of money they were getting,
0: Very substantial indeed. I think if one looks at the the balance in the first year of our entry, 1973, uh, at that time we contributed just over £6 million to community funds. Now that, of course, again, preceded the oil crisis and everything else. I suppose people would say at that time £6 was £6 million. Uh, And we received from the community in the same year 43.8 43.8 million. Now, in the intervening years, up to 1980, for example, the figures have risen quite dramatically. Of course, inflation accounts for a fair proportion of that. But in 1980, uh, we contributed. £91 million, £91.5 million pounds to the European Community Funds and received from the EEC in that year £572 million. Now, that's quite a, a dramatic rise, even allowing for the inflation that took place in the intervening years. And I think the pattern is continuing since 1980 at approximately the same rate. The totals, not to blind people with figures, but I think the totals for the, uh, that period, 1973 to 1980, are interesting because... In the total of those years, we contributed to the EEC uh, £256 million altogether and received £2,212 million. Those figures are quite uh, impressive, I think, by any standards.
2: Jo Fahey, Information Officer in Dublin for the European Parliament. But what did she make of it all?
3: Oh very nice thank you and the streets are so clean